This is Fragmented, an Android developer podcast where we talk about building good software and becoming better Android developers. I'm Don Felker. And I'm Kaushik Gopal. Welcome to the show. This episode of Fragmented is brought to you by BuddyBuild. BuddyBuild is a mobile optimized continuous integration and delivery platform that takes just a few minutes to set up. Thousands of mobile development teams already rely on BuddyBuild because it's one of the fastest ways to build, test, and distribute, and also gather feedback on your applications. With every Git push, BuddyBuild kicks off a new build, runs your UI tests in parallel on real devices. It can then also automatically deploy the build to your users as well via Slack or email, etc. Furthermore, with a simple screenshot, testers can also send their feedback directly to you along with important diagnostic details. So that's pretty cool if you're trying to push out a new application. They also have crash reporting built in, which will record your frequency, affected users, and stack traces, and all that good old stuff, and send it back to you so you can figure out what caused the crash in the first place. So if you're interested in joining thousands of other developers who have already added BuddyBuild to their development process, you can try it out for free today. And to do that, you're going to want to go to fragmentedpodcast.com slash BuddyBuild. Again, go to fragmentedpodcast.com slash BuddyBuild and you will get redirected to buddybuild.com to try it for free. Thanks, BuddyBuild. So Kaushik, I've been uh, doing a little bit of work for some clients, and I've been not even knee-deep, but like neck-deep and probably drowning a little bit in some RX work. And uh, I kind of have been looking for a little bit of help, and I've kind of talked to you a little bit about it. That is very true. In fact, you know, we've been very good about this. Initially, we went all bonkers and like, we talked about RX Java like for a whole bunch of episodes, but then we sort of mm-hmm. dialed it down a little. But today's episode, it's time to let the beast out. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the kicker. Yeah, we got a friend of the show and someone we heard knows a thing or two about RX Java and also Android development, I hear. Yeah, a little bit. Without further ado, welcome back to the show, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Jake, you were up on one of the early episodes of Fragmented back when we had our epic, like, three-hour-long conversations <laughs> that we had to break into multiple episodes. And for those that are interested in listening to that, that's back in episodes six and seven. Uh, so just go to Fragmented Podcast, and you can check them out there or just scroll back on whatever pocket app you're using and uh, download it on your podcast app. So we wanted to bring you in today to kind of talk about some of the newer concepts in RxJava, RxAndroid, and kind of what's coming in RxJava. You know, frankly, you're actually speaking about that next month at DroidCon NYC. Um, So that's going to be very interesting, but hopefully we can get a little bit of information from you here today. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to cover. So let's go ahead and talk about some of the existing, I guess you could say, concepts that a lot of folks are out there, you know, discussing and and wondering about. And probably one of the first ones that that folks are interested in is Java 8 and all the Lambda support and and so forth. Uh, So let's just hop right into that. Are you using Java 8 for anything or are you just someone who uses like Retro Lambda or, or you know, are you using any of the new tool chain stuff that's coming down the pipe with the new tooling in Android like the like Jack and Jill and so forth? Or, or what's your thought process on that and, and what are you working with right now? Yeah, so we're using Retro Lambda currently. Uh, we had been initially a little hesitant about using it. Uh, this was about a year ago. And ultimately, in using Rx so much throughout our application, the ceremony of all the anonymous inner classes that you have to write kind of really necessitates having lambdas or method references. Uh, and so ultimately, we we decided to go with Retro Lambda, and we actually invested a lot of time in improving Retro Lambda. Uh, so it's in a much better state now than it was maybe a year ago. What exactly did you guys improve upon in Retro Lambda, and what was what needed improvements? So the big thing was uh, just a concern around how much code was being generated for each Lambda and each method reference that you use. It turned out that basically for every single Lambda that Retro Lambda would process, you would wind up with about six or seven methods in, uh, in the generated code in the, that would end up in your DEX file. And so this is, uh, this is way too many. Uh, there really doesn't need to be this many methods. And so basically the focus was on reducing the amount of code that was generated to to minimize it so that the impact of using lambdas was very low compared to if you were using the anonymous classes. Oh, okay. In the past, you've mentioned with most applications that you write and like the folks at Square, like you don't necessarily use a, a multi-dex 
approach, right? So you have a single text application. So I imagine the method count makes that much more of a difference for you folks. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and plus, you just want, uh, you don't want to have all these extra methods being generated that end up having to be executed at runtime. It makes the, the performance of the Lambda actually slightly worse than the performance of if you were using an anonymous class. And so now it's gotten to the point where it's, it's pretty much as close as it's going to get. Okay. Uh, and so it's down to about three, three methods per Lambda. Oh. And so compare that to an anonymous class, which is basically uh, just two methods. Gotcha. So it's just one additional method at this point. Right. Yeah. And then for, uh, for method references, it's, it's pretty much the exact same thing, although sometimes they can be even, even less expensive. That makes sense. Uh, so when the new Jack toolchain hits us, would you consider shifting or are you still going to stick with Retro Lambda? Is there like an additional benefit to the Jack toolchain that we would potentially miss out by using something like Retro Lambda that isn't like baked in? So as far as the language features are concerned, there's there's really no difference between the two. Uh, you're going to get lambdas, you're going to get method references, you're going to be able to backport, uh, like try with resources. But uh, the difference under the hood is actually the Jack compiler can be even more efficient than uh, what Retro Lambda can do. And it actually generates one less method per Lambda. And this is actually the same for method references as well. And so this, this is basically because um, the Jack compiler is going directly from the source file into the compiled code and then into the Dex bytecode. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the legacy toolchain tool and Retro Lambda, um, each one of those steps is kind of just a discrete operation. Right, right. And so the, the job that Retro Lambda has to do in order to transform the Java bytecode into backported Java bytecode is just a lot more challenging. And that's why you end up with this extra method. It's it's kind of a convenience so that the tool can be simpler. Uh, and Jack doesn't have to do that because it's essentially the entire tool chain itself. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So one thing that we did uh, want to talk about is, uh, we've talked about Alex Java on the show before, but... This was at a time where everyone was just getting introduced to RxJava. The concepts, Mm -hmm. the basic definitions and concepts in themselves was sort of new uh, to everyone. But it seems like the Android developer community has sort of like caught up with RxJava in a large uh, way. So we wanted to touch on some of the interesting aspects that people would otherwise not necessarily know. Uh, One thing that has been introduced since is uh, the concept of a single in Rx. And I remember even... Uh, this was some time back, maybe like in one of the GitHub issues, like this whole thing about like the single came up. So could you tell us like what exactly is a single like with RxJava? Is it something that we would use? Uh, is it something that you use? Is there like a benefit to it? Sure. So the idea of single is that uh, a lot of these actions that you're going to be wrapping in an observable often have a pattern where it's uh, something asynchronous that really just returns one result. Or alternatively, it throws an error. Uh, and so you can think of this like almost like a what an async task was. Uh, if you're mm-hmm. familiar with JavaScript, it's very similar to a promise. Oh right. Um, okay. It's it's an operation that it's an operation that returns a single value or emits an error or fails in some way. And so that's that's really what single is about. It's just a, a way to uh, encode that information that there's only going to be a single value into the type system instead of just having it kind of being implicitly defined uh, on some method that returns observable. So instead of like the uh, trifecta with you with on next, on error, and uh, on completed, which you typically have for like an observable, right? With the single, you just have like a success or a failure kind of situation. Right. I mean, a typical example is with network calls, I imagine, right? Because typically when we, with retrofit, especially when I use... Uh, my network calls and I return an observable, usually you only care about a single result. So is this something that Mm -hmm. you've resorted to using or do you just stick to an observable? Because technically you don't need a single. It is a much nicer API, but uh, you can achieve the same things with an observable, right? So is this something that you found yourself using a lot? So we did add support to Retrofit for creating singles, um, but it turns out that we haven't really adopted it uh, in our application. And that's certainly not to say that there's any fault with uh, single. It, it models the task of this network request very well, like you said. 
So the reason that we don't really use this a lot in our application is that the network calls that we're creating from Retrofit are being composed into these other observable chains, which are usually the result of some user action. So we'll have an observable which models someone clicking on a button, and then we'll want to transform that into a network call, which ultimately ends up in some result. And so since the the button clicks are an infinite stream of observable, an infinite stream of kind of notifications. Mm -hmm. It's already an observable. And so we basically want to stay in the observable world. And so that's why we end up using observable for our network requests and not single. Now, if you have something where you're just initiating the network request from something that's not a stream, it's perfect for that. Or if you're already composing multiple things together, which only return one value, it's perfect for that as well. It's just that we already have these these infinite streams which require observables, and so we end up making our network requests also be observable. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes a lot of uh, sense. I guess the, the problem with singles is it isn't directly the equivalent of an observable, right? So not all the operators apply. And like you rightly said, you can't necessarily intermingle observables and singles uh, for the obvious reason right yeah a lot of times uh, a lot of times you'll see that the the methods even when you're dealing with a single the methods for composing them end up turning the stream back into an observable uh, right, and, right. and that's just because the these operations that you're doing might return uh, multiple values or they might require you know back pressure um, mm-hmm. there's definitely a reduced number of operators. Uh, and that's also simply because a single only has one value. So a lot of the a lot of these operators simply don't make sense. Uh, you, you'll never need to take a single and turn it into a list, or you'll never need to count the number of items being emitted from a single. Um, so those ones don't make sense. Uh, and some of the other ones uh, are just really not implementable because you only have a single value rather than this more complex stream of unknown values. So you, this kind of is like a, a perfect segue into a, a library that, that you have released called RX Relay. And this is really interesting to me because I'm uh, just finishing up a course on Castor.io about subjects in general. And RX Relay seems to kind of fill some of the gaps that are inside of kind of subjects in general. Would you mind talking a little bit about what RX Relay is and maybe why you built it and, and who would be interested in using it? Sure. So the name Relay uh, basically was just made up, but the idea was that subjects are both observables and they're also observers. Uh, and so that means you can subscribe to them and receive values. And you can also use them kind of as a sink for putting values into and so you call on next on a subject and it you know multicasts that out to anyone that's subscribed. But the problem is that because it's an observer, uh, a subject also has an on complete and on error method, which allow you to propagate uh, these complete or error events. And so a lot of times what you'll see is that subjects uh, are being used to bridge the gap between some non-RX code into the RX Uh, observable world. And you see that being used in a way where you really don't want, you you never want a terminal event. You never want on complete or on error to be called. And with a subject, as soon as you call on error or on complete, that subject is essentially not useless, but you can no longer use it to emit values. Anyone that subscribes to that subject after the terminal event will just get the on complete or on error and no other values. And so when you see these subjects being used for long periods of time to model, you know, the activity lifecycle or even interactions from the UI, basically these streams that are infinite, it's very, it's very easy to get into a, a place where you can terminate one of these subjects and then your UI becomes unresponsive or your app becomes unresponsive to the lifecycle. And so that's the core idea behind Relays. It's the exact same thing as subjects, except it's impossible to terminate them. It's impossible to prevent them from still behaving like uh, the multicast operator that a subject otherwise would be. Could someone replicate a very similar behavior by using something like a replay subject maybe, or is, does it have different semantics or, or what? So all the, all the different flavors of subjects are mm-hmm. also available as, as relays. Okay. And it's really, it, it's really just the idea that 
you never want these things to terminate. Gotcha. And it allows you to do that in a type safe way. It is it is impossible to terminate these relays. With a subject, you know, you can say like, well, I'll just I'll just never call on complete or I'll just never call on error. Mm-hmm. And that's that's fine, but when you're working on a code base with a bunch of developers, <laughs> whether you're working with people that are maybe new to Rx, I mean, oh, yeah. these kind of things can happen. You you see this subject, it's very appealing, maybe you subscribe it to a stream. Uh, and then that stream emits on complete, and then your subject is dead. And so the idea is really to just encode that in the type system where it's it's impossible for you to stop a relay from emitting events. So I see that here you have, just like you said, you have a, you have a behavior relay, you have a published relay, a replay relay, a serializable relay. And so there's a whole bunch of different flavors that you can use. Very interesting. Yeah, it's exact, the exact same semantics as a subject, except for that terminal event. Excellent. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, and as a result, it actually ends up being ever so slightly more efficient because it no longer has to check and keep track of whether it's seen that terminal event. Mm-hmm, yeah. All it's doing is just distributing these events to who's ever subscribed. Now, since these things never, these don't have a terminal event, do we need to worry about any types of, of leaks or anything like that? Or are there any gotchas that we should be aware of or the listeners should be aware of if they want to use RX Relay? I mean, certainly. Certainly none that are any different from subjects themselves. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, with a with a subject or a relay, um, a lot of times you use them to maybe cache the last value that was emitted. Mm-hmm. And as with anything that that caches values, you have, just have to be careful that you're not putting something in there that has a reference to a context, an activity, uh, you know, a view, anything that you wouldn't want to otherwise cache somewhere that would cause a leak, you you don't want to put into a, a subject or a relay. Is Rx Relay basically a subject underneath or have you tweaked the implementation to be like a new construct uh, altogether? It, it could be implemented with just subjects. You could mm-hmm. you could just wrap, basically wrap sub- each uh, respective subject behind uh, the relay types. Uh, what I ended up doing was actually just copying the sources for all the subjects and removing knowledge of terminal events. <laughs> oh, sweet. Okay, okay. That makes sense. Uh, uh, which then brings us to our next thing. Uh, I mean, it's a perfect segue. You mentioned sometimes you uh, you want to basically cache certain events. Uh, and this is almost, especially in the early days, this was something that was asked constantly. People are like, hey, I have this costly operation. I have this huge network call or something. And uh, essentially, I'm executing this connection. But I want it shared uh, with uh, because my activity was rotated or something along those lines, right? And so is this the application for this other library that you've written, which is Rx Replaying Share? So Rx Java has built-in mechanisms for caching the last value or for not triggering an observable for every new subscriber. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The The first one would be the replay operator, which allows you to, to cache values. And then the other one is the share operator, which allows you to share an observable so that each subscriber doesn't re-trigger the upstream observable. The problem is that there's no built-in operator that gives you both of these functionalities where you want to replay the last value that anyone, any subscriber has seen, but you also don't want to trigger the upstream observable multiple times. And so this, this essentially, this, this, uh, this operator, it's actually a transformer, but this library just solves that problem in you know like a, a 50 line file which just <laughs> combines combines those two uh, operations together into a single operation which allows allows you to cache the last value and so any subscriber that comes in will immediately get the last value that was seen by any subscriber uh, but it also prevents the upstream observable from being subscribed to multiple times interesting uh, another key point is that if if everyone ups- unsubscribes it will also unsubscribe from the upstream observable. Oh, so if, if the upstream observable is computationally expensive or it's hitting the network, you, you want that to stop whenever no one's listening. And then once when another subscriber comes in, it will replay the last value and it will also reconnect to whatever the upstream observable is. Oh, very cool. Can you give us an example of like a typical use case like where you've used this before? Yeah, so the big one that we the big one that we use it for is um, o- almost like for view models, mm-hmm. and so we have say the the signed in user in our application, 
And there's multiple screens that want to observe the signed in user. And they want to be notified when that changes. You know, if you change your name, if the preferences change, if the server pushes down, you know, some new, uh, new properties. And so that's the reason that we want to share this is that it's, it's used by multiple screens and it's a computed user object. It's not just, you know, this one source comes from the database, comes from the network. All these sources are contributing to this, this one user object. So we share that so that every screen that wants to care about the user object can subscribe to that. And then we also use the replaying part because when you navigate to that screen, we want to immediately populate it with whatever the last known value was, whatever the last known user object that anyone has seen gets immediately pushed to the new subscriber. And that also uh, would potentially trigger the uh, the upstream observable, the observable that's that's monitoring the user to to connect and to actually watch the database and to potentially make network calls. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, especially when, like you rightly said, if it's something that uh, is either like cached on disk or it does like a network call, if there's like a computational heavy operation which you want to pipe the results down to, then this makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we use we use it a lot with SQL Bright. Yeah, which is we we touched on this actually in the the last time I was on, which is basically just putting applying RX principles to the database, and so when no one is listening to the user object, we don't want the uh, we don't want to be connected to the database listening for changes to the user table, and so that's that's where the the disconnect part becomes really important. So I'm sure there's some folks that are listening that are familiar with subjects, and myself included, of wondering, okay. This makes sense, but how does this differ from a replay subject of with a you know bounded to one item where it just replays the last one and then is how is it different? I know you said something about the connected observable. How are the semantics different in that situation? Yeah, so it's it's definitely very close to a replaying subject. It's very close to just using the replay operator on a stream. Okay. The difference is that it just combines these three requirements that that we need that you you cannot get with one of these other things. You might get two of them, but you won't get all three. And that's replaying the last seen value, uh, not having multiple subscriptions to the original observable for multiple people subscribing to this observable, and then also disconnecting from the upstream observable whenever there are no subscribers to this observable that makes a lot of sense and i guess on the github project you have like a you have the marble diagram and like having look at the marble diagram it actually makes a lot of sense too yeah if if you haven't seen a marble diagram before it it might not be the most intuitive one (laughs) but uh if you're if you're familiar or you've seen a bunch before i i tried to make it as clear as possible Uh, although i this has come up a few times what the differences are between you know the, the replay subject the replay operator uh, so I think I might add like a like a table or something to the readme to to really emphasize that this does that one extra thing that sometimes you might need. Okay. Yeah, the whole world of multicasting, which is like all these operators you talk about, right? Like replay, publish, uh, share, ref count, like all of them. It's pretty easy to shoot yourself in the foot with all of these operators. Definitely, and the the names aren't always the most descriptive as to what the behavior is. Yeah, yeah. I remember running into a similar problem where like the uh the warmth of the operator if it was like a hot or a cold operator and then like depending on when you unsubscribe and when you uh, subscribe like a lot of those behaviors change so it's pretty tricky but uh, this replaying share looks super interesting yeah like i said we we have maybe four or five places where we use it in the application mm-hmm. uh, and that's in those those kind of very specific instances but a lot of times we do get away with just using like the replay operator or just the share operator. That makes sense. And just to remind folks, this is a transformer. It isn't necessarily an operator. So you can just like compose the sucker onto anything that you have. Right. It takes takes some observable that you have that you want to share and that you want to replay the last value to. And that turns it into turns it into a new observable that has that behavior. Makes sense. Now would you normally expose this as through daggers, like some type of singleton that you're, you're you're passing around, or how do you guys normally work with something that's a RX replaying share? That's that's pretty much exactly uh, how it's used. It's 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 uh, created once, and it, usually it's created for the entire application, or maybe it's just created for the lifetime of the activity. Okay. And so any view that comes in inside that activity gets to share the same user observable. 
Mm. gets to get that last replayed value. And so there's only ever one of them and they're all shared among uh, the views. I literally need to go back and rewrite some code that I wrote last week. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to take us too much in the deep end, but you also mentioned view models. Yeah, it's uh, we we don't have a really strict pattern. Okay. So we're we're not deep into MVP or MVVM. Okay. We we have a pretty ad hoc architecture right now, uh, which is working really well, and we've just been experimenting with different patterns in in different screens depending on the needs of that screen. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I used like I was in the camp where like you know with the whole presenters and controllers I was very strict about it, but then like you rightly said, a lot of this depends specifically on the use case. It's it's pretty tricky to sort of like lay down a single pattern and have that work well with when you have multiple people working on the team and using it on different. Yeah, RX has definitely helped in the sense that you don't need as strong of an application of a of a an architecture in some way mm-hmm. because a lot of that gets pushed into the streams themselves. Yeah. That and makes so sense. we we've gotten away with not having something, something strict for a while. Yeah. Because RX in itself is such a, a very distinct pattern, right? That's like different from the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. No. And I think in the previous episode, when we were wrapping up, we kind of touched on kind of this RX Android thing that was being worked on. And I, back in the day, it was aptly named not RX Android, <laughs> Um, and so over the course of this, basically the whole last year at various conferences and talks and just email communication, I've had folks asking me, I want to use RX. I want to get started in RX. What do I look at first? Do I go look at RX Android or do I go look at RX Java? And there's, there's always been some confusion around there. What is really RX Android and kind of what is the state of affairs with that project at this time? Yeah. So shortly after the last podcast, uh, a lot of the things that we talked about were we're done to RX Android. And that to, to kind of uh, recap them, we essentially gutted the project and stripped it down to its, its core essentials, the things that you absolutely need when you're using RX Java on Android. And really, that's just knowledge of uh, Android's main thread. And so RX Android primarily serves as a, uh, a way to expose a scheduler for not only in the main thread, but but really any any handler. And so that's really all RX Android is anymore. And so at the time it had, you know, bindings for UI widgets, it had things for content values, it had things for broadcast receivers. Uh, and so all of those were stripped out into to separate libraries. And the the not RX Android project evolved into RX bindings, which is what the uh, the view bindings part of RX Android was, which is taking listeners from the UI and turning them into observables, and taking taking streams of data and binding them to to properties of views. So, like whether view is enabled or the text on a text view. Yeah, that may. I mean, RX bindings is like a godsend for us. It's just so easy because I remember in the early days when you had to transform like view events, it was kind of a pain in the butt to do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's actually gotten a lot better in terms of what RX Java provides, mm-hmm. but uh, it's yeah, RX bindings is still really useful because it it just gives gives you all of the gives you all the events from any view that you would want to care about. Right, and I, I remember you've also been adding some stuff uh, like for list adapters as well. Like you have an adapter that I mean, you have an observe that binds directly to the adapter of a list, right? Yeah, so. Uh, we have some interesting, that was actually based off of some requirements that we had internally in our app, uh, which was doing things like um, measuring the the greatest width of any view inside of an adapter. Oh. Uh, and that would be for like a, for like a pop-up menu. Oh, okay. So when you, when you create a pop-up menu, you have to measure all the children and then get the widest one. And that becomes the width of the pop-up menu. Um, and we had a, we had a menu that whose items were changing based on a stream. And so we wanted to take take that stream, turn it into a list adapter, measure the widest item, and then turn that into the width of the pop-up menu as a single stream of observables. It's pretty clever, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that, that required basically listening to the adapter uh, for changes so that we could essentially just flat map it into this, into this stream. So is there anything else that you want to touch on uh, with RX Android? Because I remember in the early days, RX Android was like this, like you mentioned, it was like this 
hodgepodge of like a whole bunch of things and now it's like super lean and clean uh, so what is the future of rx android are we hoping to just keep it uh, as it is because it basically serves most of our purposes or is there anything that like looking ahead to rx android specifically is there anything that's going to change i think it's mostly going to stay the same as a small library that only provides the essentials i mean android is android is a massive platform and so trying to trying to encapsulate everything reactive that you would want for android in a single library is just not feasible at all yeah. and so it will it will remain as kind of this minimal subset and then we'll just let the community build up all these different libraries for more specific uses around it as and when android evolves and we the requirements change for that i suppose it makes sense at this point to have independent libraries that just attend to that specific purpose right yeah plus the the other advantage is that they can be developed and released uh independent of each other yeah, yeah. so as as things change uh you, you know you kind of want to evolve different parts of whatever you're interacting with on android new you know new apis come about or new patterns for interacting with whether it be widgets or the file system or databases whatever and so allowing those to evolve independently is is actually a huge huge win if we're looking to the future of rx so we've been on rx java well, i guess you could say 1.x for quite a while now and there's been a lot of talks of RX Java 2. I think someone even backported it eventually back so it could work on Android um, and so forth. There's a whole bunch of stuff about uh, RX Java 2 out there. And you're even talking about it, as I said earlier, at DroidCon next month, which hopefully will be recorded in, in stream so folks can check it out. But in the meantime, do you have any updates on RX Java 2? Maybe when it's going to be released? Uh, is it going to be compatible with Android? Anything of that nature? Yeah, so development on RX Java 2 has really picked up over the last maybe two months. Kind of kind of was always this idea, even from uh, before RX Java 1.0 was released. Uh, there, there was already kind of talks of what the next version would look like. And so it, it's kind of sat stagnant for essentially a year. And then some changes in the project, how it was managed, allowed development to, to pick back up and really, really ramp up over the last two months. Thankfully, uh, it, it definitely will be supporting Android. It's, it's going to be supporting Java 6. Uh, and this was, this was a big issue because it, it was initially developed as a Java 8-only library uh, when it was conceived. And through a lot of polite complaining <laughs> on... <laughs> The Arc Java issues. Um, we, we were essentially able to convince the the maintainers that supporting Android and supporting Java six would be would be a huge win. If anything, it would be a big mistake for them to not support Android because you know the Android community has really really stepped up and adopted Arc Java uh, probably more so than any other community that has the potential to uh, to adopt Arc Java. Yeah, that's very true, right? Like for those who actually develop in Java, most of like the Android users, I would say today, just maybe because of sheer numbers, probably use Rx Java more than backend folks, right? Yeah, it's definitely widespread in the backend, but because because server development is is really really diverse in the number of libraries, frameworks, and even just ways to do things, uh, it's it's certainly not used at the numbers that it is on Android. Ah, that makes sense. Let's maybe touch some of the specifics with regards to RX Java 2, right? I know there's this whole thing of a new specification called the Reactive Streams specification, which is actually a little different from the native stream of RX Java. So RX Java 2 is going to comply towards this Reactive Streams specification. Can you tell us a little more about like how all of that works? Yeah, the idea is just that RX Java is not the only Java library doing these um, these reactive streams, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, for, for lack of a better name. I mean, they chose the perfect name here. <laughs> and the idea is that library developers and even application developers want to be able to choose a particular implementation, but not be restricted in the sense that they, can't, they get uh, forced to either use certain libraries or not use other libraries based on that library's decision of which uh, which reactive stream implementation to use. And so the reactive stream specification is the idea that we can define these few interfaces and allow them to be implemented by each of the uh, reactive implementations so that if my library is using uh, RxJava 2 
And the application that's pulling it in is using something like maybe ACA, the actor framework. It can interop, it can, it can use the ArcJava streams that my library is exposing and have them operate with the uh, ACA streams that the application is using seamlessly, allow them to interact seamlessly and, and vice versa. Uh, it's basically just a, uh, a guarantee of interop and a kind of a contract that each of these implementations agree to adhere to. And how different was RxJava 1 from the whole reactive streams specification, like the standard that's uh, or like the standard that was come up with? It's it's not that different. The reactive streams is I think it's like four interfaces. Oh, okay. And it might be a total of like 12 methods. It's it's not a big specification at all. Uh, it's really just around what what interfaces uh, define a stream? What interfaces define something that's subscribing to a stream? How do you cancel a stream? How do you deal with back pressure in a stream? It's like these these very simple fundamental concepts, and so they're they're present in RxJava, RxJava one, uh, and there's actually a separate library that implements these interfaces for RxJava one. It, it like adapts them to the reactive streams types. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then RxJava two, like you said, is basically has a, has a native implementation. So we're uh, it's using these interfaces directly in its implementation, so that it's compliant with the specification out of the box. There's also something that's changed with RxJava two, which is like the nature of how observables are created. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So this is uh, it, it's actually still changing, uh, but there's a big kind of win last week in how observables are created. Oh. In, in ArcJava 1, there's a lot of ways to create observables. And when you're a newcomer to the project, to ArcJava, you see these methods called create, observable.create, single.create. And you think, oh, well, this method's called create. That must be how I create these, these types. And while you're correct that that's how you create them, what you don't know is that in in calling that method, you're essentially telling RxJava that you know everything about how an observable has to be implemented, and you're going to adhere to that in your implementation. And the truth is, you don't know any of that. Oh, that is a very difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's all these things that, you, you know, even to this day, I'm discovering like all these interesting ways of, of implementing observables to guard against all the challenges that an implementation has to guard against. And so in ArcJava 1, there's a bunch of static methods for like adapting other types of data. So you have the just, from you have from, there's one called from callable. callable. Yeah. Um, it's, these are the ones that you should be using. Uh, and so the nice thing is that most of those still exist in ArcJava 2. You're still going to be able to you know use just and pass in a value. You're still going to be able to call from and pass in an iterable or a list. But the difference is that the create method is no longer as, uh, <laughs> it's no longer as toxic as it was in RxJava <laughs> 1. Um, so the the from async method that I mentioned in, in RxJava 1 is a way for you to adapt a listener-based API into an observable. Oh, that's pretty cool. So if you are wrapping like a click listener, you would want to use the from async factory method. It's going to take care of things like back pressure. Uh, it's going to make sure that you're not emitting notifications after after you call it on complete or on error. Uh, it's going to make sure that all the specifications of how an observable is supposed to behave is honored. And in RxJava 2, the from async method is gone. It turn, We basically just adapted the create method to behave correctly in that same way. Oh, so basically the original way of creating the observables that yeah, we used to do with uh, RxJava 1 no longer exists or it's being changed to something with uh, observable toxic create warning beware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually, uh, right now it's called unsafe create. Unsafe create, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good, yeah, that's better, yeah. Fitting. The idea is to put a giant, you know, red sticker, red <laughs> flashing warning saying, Listen, this is this is unsafe. Like you really have to know what you're doing if you're going to use this method. And if you don't know what you're doing, just use the normal create method. It will take care of most of these things for you. And 
you really just don't, you don't have to worry anymore about uh, having running into these weird conditions where you've broken the observable contract and your application gets in this really weird state that you can't explain. That makes a lot of sense. That definitely seems like a big win, especially for like people who are like getting into RxJava. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've seen a lot of code out there from folks who just create their own observables and it's just, it's not pretty really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really hard from a user education perspective with RxJava 1 to say, actually, you know, never use observable create, <laughs> never use it. It is, it is 100% of the time the wrong thing for you to be using. With a method name of create, it's really hard to get that into people's head because it seems so innocuous. innocuous. It seems like the, yeah, the way to create these things. Uh, and it really isn't in RxJava 1. And so thankfully in 2, as of, as of right now, uh, I, I probably should have said earlier that uh, you know everything I'm saying is what's currently on the development branch of 2.0, but all of it is still subject to change. I don't, I don't think it will change, but at least as of right now, uh, the create method is is a very safe and sane way to create these observables. Do you have an idea of approximately when it's going to hit the stands? Yeah, so there there is a schedule. It slipped a little bit, but the idea is actually that uh, in the next, I think it's two weeks, we'll see the first developer preview. And so the idea, yeah, the idea is to, you know, to have people look at it, get a feel for the API, find out what's missing, find out what's maybe doesn't need to actually be there. Um, it's not stable by any means. It's just to try and get people actually looking at the project, uh, maybe trying it out in small side projects, applications, or tiny Java apps, whatever. And then, uh, yeah, there'll be there'll be a few of those. Right now, there's scheduled to be three of them over the next about two and a half months. And then the release itself is looking to be. Um, I think October, middle of October. Again, certainly not set in stone. It, it might change a little bit, but uh, it's it's definitely winding down. There's there's been a lot of work happening. Uh, it's to the point where like documentation is being filled out, and so it's oh, it's fairly okay. mature. But uh, yeah, there's there's still some work to be done to make sure that it's presenting the best foot forward when it's finally released. So we. We talked, you know, about one side of the spectrum here of creating the observables and all the safe and unsafe ways to do such thing. Is there anything changing on the other side, like subscribing to these set observables? Anything changing in that regard? Yeah, so subscribing is actually very different um, in one key way. So you're still passing in a, uh, a callback. You're passing in a callback, which gets your on next events, it gets your on complete events, gets your on air okay. events. All right. But the key difference is that uh, when you call that subscribe method, it no longer returns the subscription. What? Oh. So it, in RxJava 1, when you call subscribe, you get back a subscription. And that subscription represents the, the fact that you are subscribed to this stream and it gives you a mechanism for unsubscribing. Yeah, the connection, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Represents the connection. And so the difference is that in RxJava 2, the listener that you're passing in is also the is it's also representative of the connection. So uh, there's basically this concept called disposable, which is coming, and it's it's very similar to what a subscription is, where it's representation of uh, some state of whether or not you are disposed or not. And disposed is essentially uh, the the mechanism through which you cancel your subscription to a stream. And so the difference is that instead of calling subscribe, getting back your subscription and retaining the reference to your subscription, you're now going to create your observer, your, your listener, the mechanism through which you're getting called. And that's also going to be essentially what the subscription is. It's going to be the mechanism that you can then cancel the stream. Oh, okay. Oh, that seems like a pretty big change though, right? Like that basically means a lot of the previous stuff has to be rewritten because currently one of the, the guaranteed ways to make sure you don't leak stuff or uh, you don't shoot yourself in the foot is like the whole composite subscription pattern that people just like tack on subscriptions to. And then in the end, uh, with the lifecycle change, say on stop or on destroy, that's where they clear or sort of like unsubscribe all of those things. That seems like that pattern is going away. Well, so the, the pattern of like the composite uh, object that holds multiple objects that you can then cancel all at once. That still exists. Okay. There's still uh, there's still this there's a composite disposable, which is essentially just a collection of oh, disposables. Okay. Okay. 
And these observers that you're passing in to to listen to events on the stream also implement disposable. So they're they're also these disposable objects. Uh, and so just think of the think of the observer, think of the callback that you're passing in as also being the subscription. So instead of having instead of having two objects for every uh, subscription to a stream, you have the the listener that you're passing in, and you have the subscription that you were getting back. You now only have one object. You have the observer, and the observer is also the effectively the subscription. Ah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, so you can still you can still bundle them up into a single uh, composite disposable where you can dispose all of these at once. All the same patterns for managing them still exist. It's just that you're no longer uh, you're no longer getting them back when you call subscribe. You're now just creating them yourself. So this reminds me of very much back in the C sharp days of the iDisposable interface. Uh, seems like yeah. it's influenced from that, correct? Yeah, a lot of a lot of the naming in RxJava is influenced from the Rx.net streams and the standard interfaces in C sharp itself. So disposable definitely comes from iDisposable. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. And it also makes a lot of sense because uh, usually when you want to like stop or disconnect the uh, subscription, it makes sense that that would be shifted towards the listener side, right? Because it's the listener eventually that would sort of unsubscribe from this versus just establishing that connection and tightly binding both of those. Because you may want the source to continue to sort of like emit and it's only the listener that you want to sort of unsubscribe from. Yeah, I think I think it will definitely take a while to get used to, but it's... It's a simplification of the concept, and so, like you said, it's uh, it just combines the two things into one, so that you can think of them as as the same thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Another concept that uh, I guess uh, these days people understand it, but like during the initial phases, one thing that always threw people off was uh, the concept of back pressure, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess at this point, people understand what back pressure is, but something's changed about. Well, not specifically about back pressure, but about Alex Java too, and its uh, philosophy towards back pressure, right? Yeah, that's right. So there's there's a new type that's coming in Rx Java two, and that type is called flowable. And the big difference is that the types that we already know, observable, single, uh, and there's also completable, which we didn't really talk about. That that kind of came after Rx Java one. Um, which is essentially a an object that either completes or errors, but has no no data associated with it. And so those three types are still there: observable, single, and completable. Mm -hmm. But the change in RxJava two is that none of them have back pressure anymore. And so there's there's no way to tell there's no way to tell an observable to slow down. And that may seem scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and to, to someone that has been bit a lot by back pressure, that may seem awesome. And the reality is that back pressure is something that has to be very explicitly modeled and thought about. A lot of times you just have sources which can't apply back pressure in a sane way. Uh, the perfect example is clicks on a button. Uh, you, you cannot slow down or, or maybe um, let's, let's do mouse moves like a mouse or, or touch events since we're on Android. Um, you, you can't slow down the user's finger. You can't tell the user like, Hey, can you take your finger off the screen for a second while I, you know, catch up drawing this shape? You can't do that. And so like the fact that you have to deal with back pressure in a situation like that can be challenging in RxJava 1. So what RxJava 2 has done is separated the concept of something that is just purely a source of events. And that's our observable to something that is a back pressure aware source of events. And that's a flowable. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, flowable encapsulates the idea that a stream is aware of back pressure and can handle it properly. So with any luck, it will drastically reduce the number of exceptions that we get from operators uh, and observable sources that don't know how to handle back pressure. But there are multiple ways of applying back pressure, right? So is there like a default that's chosen or like how do you specify that? So you can take an observable and turn it into one of these flowables. But in order to do that, you have to you have to pick. There's oh, no default. Okay. It okay. forces you to pick a strategy. Uh, and so the the common ones are to to buffer, which is basically just keep keep a list of events that the downstream consumer can't handle right now, so that when they can handle them, it can get caught up. You can do latest, 
which is similar to buffer, except that it only keeps the most recent event. And the last one is drop, which is just I when back pressure is applied, just ignore events that are coming in. Those are the three that you can select when you're converting between the two. Uh, but there's also a bunch of other strategies, and you can even implement custom strategies if you're creating a flowable directly. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it allows you to handle... It, it's actually very similar to, to RxJava 1, whereas when you're implementing an observable with the create method that really no one should be doing, <laughs> uh, you can handle back pressure and you can handle it in whatever way is most appropriate to... Uh, whatever you're adapting. And so the same is true in ArxJava 2. You you have these flowables and you can handle the requests, um, requests being the the, impl- the mechanism of back pressure. Uh, you can handle the requests of back pressure in any way that you'd like. So it's basically the mechanism now to move away from observables to flowables. Like by default, you almost always then would want to be using a flowable, right? I think it really depends. Uh, I haven't built something significant enough to have a really strong recommendation yet. Gotcha. Uh, If anything, I would almost default to the opposite just because not having to think or know about back pressure is so much simpler conceptually. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And a lot of times with Android, we're doing things where back pressure... Back pressure is not the right way to stop input from happening. True. So I I started with my button example uh, where, you know, like clicks on a button can't really accept the back pressure. And that's that's not really true because you can disable the button. Mm-hmm. True, but true. that that might not be the the uh desired right the UX that you want to have uh back pressure manifest itself as. Uh, maybe you just want those events to go into a, a buffer or something else. But the idea of having to the idea that um you're explicitly forced to think about back pressure when you need it, I think is so much more important that you should always start without it when you can and only add it when it's explicitly needed, because then you're actually forced to think about it at the kind of the edges between the two. I think it's something that we'll definitely have to experiment with as RxJava 2 finally gets these developer preview releases that we can start using. Uh, I, I think we'll just have to experiment with it and see what the right pattern actually is for how we deal with choosing between the two. Now, in regards to, to back pressure, a lot of uh, folks really starting to get into RX for the first time kind of get confused about uh, back pressure. And the big question I always get is, when do we need to worry about back pressure and how do we really know if we have a problem in back pressure? Do you have any advice on that? Um, it's it's definitely a big topic and it's it's one that seems simple to understand but can manifest itself in, in very weird ways. I would say that, at least with RX level 1, you should try and not have to think about it as much as possible. It's, uh, again, like why I think in RxJava 2, we should default to not having to think about back pressure. The idea of back pressure is really something that allows you to slow down your upstream observable because you can't consume events fast enough. And I, I actually don't think that's something that happens all that often on Android. Uh, a lot of times you'll see this with uh, like a server implementation when you're dealing with consuming like a feed or, you know, you're talking to another service uh, and you need to tell that other service to slow down because you're running out of CPU or, uh, you know, disk or whatever memory. Uh, and so the, the back pressure can be applied across that, that network call to the other service to tell it to slow down producing events on Android. There's not too many places where back pressure uh, really becomes a factor. The, the interesting parts where I think it can manifest itself is when you're using operators that combine two yeah, streams. Right, I was going to say that. Mm-hmm. So if you, have, if you have a stream that's uh, emitting values from your database and you have a stream that's emitting values from, say, a, the result of a network call, your network call might come back with 10,000 entries in a list. And your database might have 10,000 entries in the list, but it could be a lot slower, uh, potentially because someone's writing to the table when you're trying to read it, whatever. The idea is that the observable is, one of the observables is slower than the other. And what you'll see is that RxJava is going to use back pressure to try and slow down the observable that's faster than the other one. Uh, And so a lot of times, if you don't think about this and you use, say, you use a custom, you've created a custom observable, 
your observable is not going to respect that back pressure. And so the operator that's combining the two streams is going to throw an exception saying, hey, one of my streams didn't, re- didn't respond to back pressure. And so I, I got overflowed, you know, I had too many events that I can't process. And it's just going to throw an exception. And I think really what you see is that whenever you're combining streams from one of the sources that was implemented in a way that doesn't handle back pressure, that's going to be where you have to think about it and deal with it. So it's the responsibility of the people creating observables to deal with back pressure. And that's why it's so important for you to use the from, observable.from, observable.from async. Don't create observables using observable.create with ArcShevel1 because you're not going to handle back pressure and you're going to get these missing back pressure exceptions. But if you're using these static factory methods that are aware of back pressure, they're going to handle it for you. And then it's really hard to run into problems where you're just using operators to combine streams that will, will have back pressure problems. If the observables implement them correctly, then you should have no problems combining them, transforming them, doing whatever, whatever transformations you want. Uh, you, you won't have to think about it or deal with it. It should all just work. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why in uh, RxJava 2, I, I tend to think that we probably want to prefer observables without back pressure because it will allow you to not only not have to think about it, but it's literally impossible for back pressure to happen in, you know, say 90% of your application. And then in the places where you're maybe combining two observables from different sources where you actually need it, then it becomes very explicit that it's happening and you can very explicitly handle it in the appropriate way. Uh, so we talked about like how RxJava 2 is being rewritten in order to accommodate uh, Java 6. One thing that I I did see in the online discussion, so with Java Eight, there is this concept of like the whole functional interface, right? And initially, RX Java two, I thought was written with that in mind, but then it was rewritten. Can you talk a little about the background there? Yeah, so Java eight came with probably about twenty interfaces that are are functional interfaces, which is uh, an interface that only has one method, uh, and so it's designed to just do you know a very specific thing. It, it takes in a type of uh, R calls does some transformation returns, you know, another type. This would be like what a, what a function is. And then there's like a consumer and a consumer just accepts the value and does something with it. So this is not just lambdas. I mean, lambdas is basically like the concept of a block function, but like with functions, there's actually like an input and return. Uh, yeah, with function, but they're all designed to be turned into lambdas. Oh, okay. Uh, it, okay. It's basically the interfaces that you use in your API so that the consumer of your API can interact with it using lambdas. Makes sense. And so these are baked into Java 8. You know, they're super important for things like streams. Uh, the entire streams API is written with them. And so ArcJava being very similar in terms of the, the type of APIs that are exposed to streams originally used the Java 8 interfaces for everything. So no more action zero, no more func zero. It was Java util function, Java util... Uh, consumer, by consumer, all these names that came from from Java. And so in the backport, something had to be done about that, right? Like we can't obviously be depending on interfaces that that aren't present until Android API 24. So what, what was done was this, they essentially were just copied. They were copied back into RxJava's package exactly the same as they were in Java. And, and so if you look, you'll see that the package for RxJava 2 is io.reactivex. And uh, if you look, you'll see io.reactivex.function.consumable. Oh, this is pretty cool. So that means if I include RxJava 2, I actually get functional interfaces then? Yeah. You get oh, all the fun- <laughs> they're, all, they're all in the public API of RxJava 2 because all of its APIs are implemented using these interfaces. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What's really awesome about this is that even though the library is being written for Java 6, and has its own copy of all these functional interfaces. Because of how Java 8 does lambdas and method references, it will, it will automatically transform a lambda or a method reference into an instance of an interface if the type of that lambda or method reference matches. And so it actually doesn't matter that we're not using the Java interfaces because the type signature of the, the interfaces in ArcJava are the same 
So you can use the exact same, you can use lambdas and you can use method references as if we were using the, the Java uh, interfaces directly because it, it doesn't matter which interfaces are actually being used. All that matters is the signature of the method inside those interfaces. That's awesome. I did not know that. That's, that is really cool. <laughs> yeah, so they have to be in Java because Java needs some interface to declare that signature the signature that is a function or is a consumer or is a whatever. And so, yeah, they actually don't really mean anything. And you don't really need those specific interfaces to, to use lambdas or to use method references. So if you were using RxJava 2 six months ago on Java 8 and you had lambdas and you had method references for whatever filtering and mapping, and you update to the latest master, other than the fact that a bunch of APIs will have changed, the, the lambdas and stuff will, will all still compile and work, uh, even though they're now being adapted into completely different interfaces than they were before because Java 8 doesn't care. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, so we still Java 8 users should still get all the benefit of the lambdas and method references, even though the library itself wasn't written specifically for Java 8. Java 8, okay. Did I hear you correctly that the action zero, action one, all those are going away, is that correct? Yeah, so all of the action interfaces and all of the function interfaces, or, or func, as they were abbreviated, they're all gone. Okay, all right, all right. At least, wow. in, at least in name. Technically, they're still there. They just kind of have a different name now. So if I was going to, if I wanted to draw that correlation between I have a bunch of actions, what would I think of it now as? So there is still, uh, there is still action, just plain action, which is okay. essentially an action zero, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically uh, almost like a runnable. It's just a, a method that takes no arguments, returns void, and just does some action. Okay. Action one, which was uh, a method that accepted one value and returned void has become consumer. Uh, actions two, which is like what you would use if you were, I guess that would be function. But yeah, so there's basically corollaries to all of the numbered action interfaces that now have names that more closely match Java 8. And the same is true of uh, the function interfaces, the ones that were func zero has become callable, uh, which, which is actually a Java interface. It's a method that takes no arguments and returns some value. And then uh, func1, which is used very commonly in operations like map and filter, has just become function, plain function. Uh, and then there's by function, which is uh, a function that accepts two arguments and returns one value, which you see if you're doing like a zip. Uh, if you're doing a zip operation, you know, you, you get two inputs and you have to combine it into one. And so they're all still there. They just have different names now. And those names more closely match the names that Java 8 has chosen for its functional interfaces. Interesting, okay. I remember in the early days, I had no clue which one to use. It was like, I have no idea, so I'm just going to let IntelliJ do its autocomplete thing and then automatically action one or action zero, or action two would get populated. But yeah, it took me some time to realize that that there is some significance to the end. It isn't just that, well, we have run out of names, so let's just start tacking on a suffix, like one, two, three. Yeah, they all have, uh, they all have very specific uses and it's basically going to be the same thing where the type signature is going to declare what the correct interface is to use so you basically just let your ide kind of help you out the other thing that's also changed uh, i believe is the runtime hooks which is uh, pretty cool as well because it does help with testing a little yeah so there's a brand new hook system which is very similar to the plugin system that people might be familiar with with rxshava1 and it's it's basically just a, a more powerful way of hooking into different parts of the the lifetime of observables, whether when they're created, uh, or, or sorry, when they're subscribed to, when um, operations are scheduled on different schedulers. So you could potentially do things like wrap them in order to say create an espresso idling resource, so that whenever something's scheduled on the I/O scheduler, espresso is automatically going to wait, and so. The hooks, uh, the hooks are basically just a more powerful way of doing this. They were very similar to the plugin system of RxJava 1, but it was a little too limiting in the way that it could be set up. And what's actually really nice about this hook system is that it, it actually was backported and is available in RxJava 1 in the the more recent version. That, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to bring up because like you can do that right now, right? It isn't necessarily... I wasn't sure it was something new, but it's... Oh, oh but you're saying it was actually brought into RxJava 2 and then backported? Yeah, so it was in two originally, and then the concept was backported into into one, and it essentially deprecates the 
the plugin system. Well, what, do you know why that was done? Like, I mean, why not just wait for ArcShower too? Just because it was so useful for testing? Pretty much. Um, yeah, the, the plugins had a problem where they had to be initialized very early in the, the application lifecycle. And once they were initialized, they couldn't be changed. Okay. And so if you were, if you had like specific tests where you wanted to apply a, a specific plugin just for that test, it was very hard to do because you couldn't change it after your application was already started. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's, that's basically the idea is just, it's more expressive, more powerful. It's pretty cool. Thank you so much, Jake. This has been amazing. We've well, we wanted to have you back on the show and uh, especially for such a sacred and dear topic to our hearts. <laughs> it's It's been a whole bunch of fun for us. Definitely. If folks want to reach out to you, uh, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, the best way is find me on Twitter. I am at Jake Wharton. And uh, if you're interested in kind of hearing about what I'm working on or seeing what I'm speaking about, I'm chronicling all that on jakewarden.com. Perfect. Uh, and if folks want to see what you're up to, Don? You can reach me on Twitter at Don Felker. That's with two N's or at donfelker.com. And I am Kaushik Gopal on Twitter. That's usually the easiest way to reach out to me. Uh, you can find the show notes for all of uh, the episodes that we do at fragmentedpodcast.com slash episodes slash the episode number. Uh, if you have feedback or suggestions for us, as always, please feel free to send us those using our Twitter handle, FragmentedCast. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode. We'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, BuddyBuild. If you haven't set up a continuous integration environment, and trust me, I've seen many companies who have not, then it's probably about time to look into it. BuddyBuild can help here. They can set up your continuous integration environment, run your tests. They can also deploy your builds to your testers quite easily. Now, if you want to learn more, go ahead and go to fragmentedpodcast.com slash buddybuild and go ahead and try it for free. Thanks again, buddybuild.